Tom Landry, the former coach of the Cowboys, once said, the job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. When I look at my life, there are many things I've had to do that I didn't want to do. When I was younger, it was going to school, doing my homework or chores. And as gross as this sounds, taking showers, which I've noticed even now as a father of all boys, is tormenting for them. Boys just don't see the need for that. But as I got older, of course, responsibilities became more serious. As Holly and I got married, there came the need to budget and plan our lives together. I actually had to start paying attention to decisions I, would, I made uh, because they impacted her now too. But probably the most serious challenge came around my late 20s. As I started going to the doctor more often, I was given probably the most blunt assessment I've ever been given by a doctor. He said, Peter, you're overweight by 20 pounds. And that's the nice version of the way he said it. Uh, your blood pressure and blood sugar are way out of control for your age. And with your family history of diabetes and stroke, I'm afraid you're not going to live long if your diet doesn't change. And then began my next eight-year battle of eating mostly oatmeal for breakfast, a salad for lunch, and chicken for dinner more often than not, which I hate. I can't even stand the texture of oatmeal, but I can't get those doctor's words out of my head. I don't want to do this, but God willing, I want to live a healthy, full life. Sometimes we have to do things we don't want to do to achieve what we never could without it. We have to discipline ourselves. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7-8, through 8, Train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promises for both the present life and the life to come. The Greek word he uses for train here is gymnazo. It's where we get the word gymnastics from, and it means to discipline or exercise. Paul's saying that like a weightlifter following a strict diet and regimen for training for the Olympics, they get up at crazy hours in the morning to bench press, run, and do whatever weightlifters do. If we want to grow and have spiritual muscles, then we need to devote ourselves to certain disciplines. Throughout church history, these have been known as spiritual disciplines. Some are more personal in nature, like meditating on God's truths, solitude, studying the Bible, while others like worship, preaching, and the Lord's Supper are done with the church. And yet disciplines can extend to acts of service, submission, or celebrating the work that God has done in our lives personally and the congregation. Scripture describes them as both personal and interpersonal things we do to mature. Spiritual disciplines help us grow in loving and becoming more like Jesus. Now, they can't change us in and of themselves, but they can put us in a position to better know and embrace the heart of God. As we continue our series, The New Normal, remember that Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount to talk about a righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees, one that goes beyond simply keeping the letter of the law, a righteousness that works from the inside out. And Jesus explains this by taking six commandments from the Old Testament, like do not murder, commit adultery, divorce, break your oaths, seek vengeance, and hate your enemies. And he raises the bar by, in essence, saying, it's not good enough to simply avoid doing these things. 
I want you to do them in a self-sacrificing way where you whip, rip away the red tape and you love even the most difficult people in your life the way I love you. The command feels impossible. I mean, does Jesus know the people in our lives or the trials we're facing? Does he see how many times we've wavered back and forth at one time resolutely taking a stand to protect ourselves and maybe experience just a glimpse of joy and yet at other times feeling guilty that we ever had such a thought? But Jesus says that being his disciples is more than simply keeping the rules, like staying in a difficult relationship or circumstance up to this point. He says to follow me is to be like me, which but the grace of God is impossible to do. But he shares three acts of righteousness or spiritual disciplines to help us do it. And as we talk about them, we'll see two truths. First, we can do the right thing for the wrong reason. And second, God works in our lives as we partner with him. As we talk about how we can do the right thing for the wrong reason, it's helpful to know that the disciples or the, dis the disciplines mentioned in this passage, giving to the poor, praying, and fasting regularly, were seen as the most noble acts a person can do in Jesus' day. Many believe that these were the three pillars of Judaism. The book of Tobit says, praying with fasting is good, but better than both is almsgiving with righteousness. Poverty was widespread back then as most people were poor farmers trying to make it day by day. This is who Jesus has in mind when he prayed in his prayer, give us this day our daily bread. People who were literally depending on daily wages to put bread on their table at night. And so with these realities around them and God's uh, commands repeatedly throughout the Old Testament to take care of the poor and afflicted among them, the Israelites saw this as their responsibility. It, was, it, it would be shameful to ignore people who are suffering and lived in a society where you couldn't climb the social and corporate ladder for one reason or another. Whether they were lame, orphans, or widows, they were the most vulnerable in society. And so the synagogue developed a program where similar to our welfare system, people can give generously to the poor. In fact, get this, people were giving so much that rabbis had to start setting limits on how much they can give so that they wouldn't hurt themselves in the process. They wouldn't allow people to give more than 20% of their income. Pious Jews were also known for praying at least three times a day, but often more. Prayer was seen as a vital part of the Jewish life. Of course, it was prominent in worship services. But rabbis also set the example by praying before making vital decisions. And fasting, though originally only commanded once in the Old Testament during the Day of Atonement, became more common after Israel returned from exile. In fact, by the time we get to this generation, certain groups within the Jewish community committed to fasting on Mondays and Thursdays because they believe those were the days that Moses went up Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord. Among many other things, if you wanted to be a good Jewish man or woman, you were generous, fasted, and prayed. These were the things that brought honor and respect to you in that society. See, that's just the way it was. One of the most maddening questions that a kid can ask you is, why? 
Daddy, why is the sky blue? Why do I have to brush my teeth or eat vegetables? And if they don't like your answer, they say, but why? It's endless. I had that moment with my mom when I was younger about church. She would take me to a Haitian church, which we'd get to about 9 a.m. for Sunday school and not leave until about 2.30, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and then come back for an evening service at 6.30 till about 8.30 at night. I'd go out of respect for her, but let's put it this way. I was that kid whose parents always had to come to get them from Sunday school. In fact, when I was um, saw my old Sunday school teacher at my mother's funeral, I had to apologize for how awful I was. There'd be days I'd really try to be engaged and focused, but if I'm honest, none of it connected with me on a personal level. I knew that God existed, but I couldn't see the difference it made in my life. And I remember finally pushing back and asking, why do I have to do this? What difference does any of this make? And after all of my complaints, which gets overwhelming for any single mom, I was so miserable that she just let me stay home on Sundays. How often do people do things because it's expected of them by loved ones and peers? They grow up in a Christian home, and so they're raised in the church and in a culture where it's normal to go to youth group, Bible camps, and retreats, or serve and know Bible trivia. And so they do these things because they should get at heart. They don't know why they do them. There are people in churches all across America today who are there because they should be. And we're glad they are, but they aren't really sure why. I find that when people view religion as a list of things they do or shouldn't do, they will either fall into a camp where they fearfully go with the crowd because they don't want to let anyone down or pridefully try to convince others there's someone they're not. Jesus warns against the latter when he says in verse 1, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. By saying be careful, he's suggesting if we're not vigilant and focused, it's tempting to want to look more godly than we truly are. We know the Pharisees were notorious for doing this. Matthew 23 says they did everything to be noticed by others. Certain parts of their religious garments, like their phylacteries and tassels, were made bigger and longer than normal so that they could stand out. When they entered the room or walked through town, they carried themselves like they were walking down the red carpet at the Oscars and waiting for people to take pictures of them. See, they were the type of people who needed to make an entrance. And Jesus uses the same word in Matthew 23 that he uses in this passage to describe them six times. Hypocrite. The Greek word for this was originally used to describe actors on a stage who put on a different mask to play different roles. It's to pretend you're something you're not. Jesus is implying that they see the world as their stage for them to act out their part. Now, that's easy to see these days among celebrities whose lives are so outlandish that they're always on the cover of People magazine or the tabloids. When you see people who are surrounded by an entourage or they've gone through a number of plastic surgeries because they hate the way they look 
It's not hard to see through what they're doing. They're in a cutthroat business where they get casted to parts or music deals based off how they look. And in their minds, if they don't keep up, they'll get left behind. And Jesus is saying that it's tempting to do the same thing in a religious context. But it's not always easy to see. You see, sometimes even in the church at large, we lose sight of what's important. We get caught up in numbers of people who attend our church, how gifted people are. And if we're not careful, we use that as a gauge, a barometer of how spiritual they are too. And we think if someone gives generously, they must be more mature. Or if they pray fervently, or oh my goodness, they fast. And when the context you live in and worship in uses that as the gauge for how spiritual people are, it creates a culture where a person thinks they have to keep up if they don't want to be left behind. Because if I'm not noticed by others, then I don't know if I'm really that spiritual. So when people give a Christian, give to a Christian organization more so, they can be on a list that publicizes their name or get a plaque with their name on it saying they gave. They're tempted to pray long, extravagant prayers that feel more like sermons than pleading with God. And when they fast, everyone has to know about it by how they carry themselves. But Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. The message translation of Matthew 6.1 puts it this way. I love how they put it. Be especially careful when you are trying to be good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. Doing the right thing with the wrong motives never pleases God and will either fool us into believing we're better than we are or crushed by the expectations we give up trying to be good enough at all. It's like the story of the prodigal son where the younger brother wants to be his own man. And so taking his inheritance, he leaves home to live it up. He finally breaks free of his father's rules. We tend to focus on how ungrateful that younger son is. But when he came to his senses and back to his family and they were celebrating that he was back home, it was his older brother who refused to have any part of it. His younger brother was dead to him in his opinion and he resented that his father spent another dime of his potential future inheritance on that bratty younger brother. See, the reality is that both brothers wanted the father's stuff but didn't want the father. They were two sides of the same coin. And if you view religion as a list of things we do or don't do, you will either be the younger brother who runs from God or the older brother who has a superiority complex. You'll get so wrapped up in all the good things you do, you'll be tempted to think that you're better than you really are. I can't help but agree with D.A. Carson when he says, because the human heart is so mixed in its motives that the desires to seek God will be diluted by the desire for human praise. We struggle with mixed motives. 
And sometimes in our attempt to meet people's expectations, we forget that God is more concerned with why we do what we do. Spiritual disciplines in themselves can't change us. But when they're done the right way, they put us in a position to grow. You see, God works in our lives as we partner with Him. The only way we can avoid legalism or ignoring God's commands altogether is to rest in the gospel. That when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, it was truly enough. It cleared the ledger of your debt you owed Him and vindicated you in His eyes. He no longer looks at you and sees guilt and shame. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sin-stained clothes to give us his purity, so that when God looks at you, he sees his son. Because of the cross, we are innocent in God's eyes. We are as innocent more so in God's eyes as we will ever be. We can't add or take away from it. Praying or fasting won't make God love me more or less. We don't do them to earn God's love, but because we're loved. Say, for instance, it's my wedding anniversary, and I take Holly to a nice restaurant, and right around the time dessert comes, I take out a necklace I bought for her, and she says to me, you shouldn't have. I'm not going to say to her, oh, honey, you're right, but I had to. If I did, I probably wouldn't make it past that dinner, but rather I'd say to her, honey, you're worth it. Because when you love someone, it brings you joy to make them happy. You don't do things for them because you have to. Rather, you want to support them any way you can. Obedience to God is fostered from a loving relationship with Him. And so we can't experience the joy that comes from spiritual disciplines if we don't have a relationship with God. And I would just say very briefly, if that's you today, God wants you to know him. And he has done everything he can through Jesus to make that possible. So I would urge you to receive his forgiveness and with his help, turn from your sins. Stop running, trusting that God will receive you as you are. The spiritual disciplines don't replace the gospel. They're empowered by the gospel. It's how we come into agreement with the work that God wants to do in our lives. Like Paul says in Philippians 2, 12-13, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Paul saying, be obedient and faithful because God Himself is helping you do it. He's not leaving you on an island to do it yourself. He will change us. Notice it says the, the work is according to his will and his action. And yet it's not going to happen by osmosis. See, we have a responsibility in the process. A cement truck can be full and ready to form a sidewalk. But if you don't have a chute or channel to funnel the cement down from the truck, it ain't happening. In the same way, it's as we partner with the Spirit through our obedience that we position ourselves to grow. So how do we do that? Jesus says in verses 3 through 4, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. 
then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What does it mean to give in secret? Well, it's not giving in a way where you literally don't know how much you're giving, nor is Jesus condemning the fact that some of the things we do will be noticed by others, nor is he against public prayer. Rather, doing it privately suggests that he doesn't want to have to compete for our attention because we're doing it for an audience of one. It's to acknowledge that we are in the presence of God. A.H. McNeil was right when he said, the secret of religion is religion in secret. See, there's a personal nature to our walk with Christ where God is waiting to commune with us in a quiet place where we get away from busyness and distractions of work and at times even people close to us to hear from God. Not that we're hermits or monks, but there are some things God can only do in us and through us as we're one-on-one with him. It's how a person realizes that at one time they weren't just a bad person. They didn't just do bad things. They were spiritually bankrupt with no hope. And it's because God showed mercy towards them, even though they didn't deserve it, that they can give generously to people. They don't even know when a need arises. This this current of love compels them, and they can't hold back the mercy God has shown toward them. In AD 125, the philosopher Aristides was so impressed by the generosity of Christians that he actually wrote a defense of Christianity uh, to the emperor Hadrian, saying, They love one another, and from the widows they do not turn away their continence, and they rescue the orphan from him who does him violence. If there is among them a man that is poor or needy, and they have not an abundance of of necessaries, they fast two or three days that they may supply the need with their necessary food. Sacrificial giving comes from someone who's been personally touched by God. Jesus says in verses 7 through 8 about prayer, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The Greek word used for babbling here is patelegio. It means idle talk or useless flow of sound without much meaning. Like when an infant says, la, 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 or calls everything dada. It's to speak without being mindful of what you're saying. Jesus is not condemning long prayers or repetitive prayers. We see times where he prayed all night, and when he repeatedly asked the Father in the garden to deliver him from the cross. But rather, Jesus is rebuking mindless prayer, where we feel like we have to convince him to hear us by emphatically or by praying emphatically or or long prayers, almost as if God's not going to hear us if we don't pray the right way. When he says at the end of verse 8, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. God not only knows our prayers before we ask, he cares. What we're going through matters to him. And if we don't see him as he is, we'll create hurdles in prayer that keep us from truly talking to him. God's not a frustrated father who's looking to scrutinize every mistake in our lives. Yes, we do do things he's not proud of, but his disappointment comes out of love because he knows the hardships we're bringing into our lives 
when we don't listen. But he never holds us in contempt. You know, it's always amazing to me how even after children do something wrong and we're upset with them, especially our youngest Peter, how shortly after everything's said and done, he'll crawl into my lap like nothing happened, boldly, confidently. And I wonder how different our prayers would be if we trusted that our Father is good and he wants good things for us. Fasting is not talked about often throughout the New Testament, nor are we given much instruction on it. But like the rest of the disciplines here, Jesus doesn't say if, but when you fast, expecting all of his disciples from time to time to do this. Fasting here is more serious than giving up chocolate for Lent. It's a set time where we determine to give up food to seek God. Leviticus 16.31 describes it as, Humbling your soul. The act was done as an expression of the uh, desperation for God to intervene in a given situation or reveal his will to us. We see it done in Acts 13, 2-3 to commission Paul and Barnabas to ministry. And Paul did it before he appointed elders in each church he planted. It could be a time to exercise self-control or done when you need a miracle. And if God doesn't work to heal, save this marriage, or provide what's needed right now, everything will fall apart. And I just got to say, maybe this is a time we need to consider a fast. Crazy year we've gone through, so many hardships in so many homes, the discouragement from the pandemic. And these are a time we need to consider, maybe we need to cry out to God in a fast. Each discipline calls us to drink from the well of grace. And you see, that's the reward that Jesus is talking about here. We do all these things in secret. We'll more fully experience God himself. Spiritual disciplines are a lot like farming. A farmer can't make his crops grow. All he can do is provide the right conditions. He tills the ground. He plants the seed. He waters the plant. And then nature takes it over from there. Similarly, spiritual disciplines are like sowing to the Spirit. On their own, they do nothing. They only get us to a place where something can happen. I tell you, any discipline is difficult and uncomfortable to start with. But when you commit to it, something happens in us, and God reveals himself in a new way. Spiritual disciplines help us grow in knowing and becoming more like Jesus. Let's pray. And Father God, we do pray for that. Um, We look at these disciplines of prayer and fasting, and there's so much more that hasn't been mentioned today. And Lord, we know that sometimes they're difficult to kind of incorporate into our lives. And yet they're a way to let you come into our lives more deeply, more fully. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters out there today listening that you would encourage them, that you'd help them see you want to spend that time with them and you have a special blessing waiting for them, your presence itself. So Lord, would you help us grow in this? Would you help us see that this is how men and women of God became strong men and women of God, ready to persevere in the midst of anything that comes their way? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.